Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this week's podcast. While we focus oftentimes on some of the big name diseases, the ones that catches ones that catch headlines, whether it's a latest pandemic or something that's been a long-term scourge like HIV or even something like sickle cell disease, you know, we're familiar with these names of these different diseases and disorders affect people everywhere. But as we start getting into the more rare diseases, you find that there's just not a lot of research into them and not not a lot of pharmaceutical development in those areas, mostly because there's such a few number of people affected. And to have these custom drugs go through the process is extremely expensive and laborious uh, to maybe not even get them approved. So companies focus on the big diseases, but yet there's so many people who suffer from rare diseases that need custom solutions. And I think that's what we're going to talk about today. <laughs> so we're speaking with Dietrich Stefan. He's CEO and founder of New Base Therapeutics in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Welcome to the podcast, Dietrich. Thank you so much for having me, Kevin. Yeah, this is great. So you're in Pittsburgh, which I never have interviewed someone from Pittsburgh before. So is this a growing biotech presence in Pittsburgh? You know, Pittsburgh is interesting because, of course, it was the center of the world during the Industrial Revolution and the richest man in the world at that time, Andrew Carnegie, hailed from Pittsburgh. And those dollars still remain in Pittsburgh in the form of foundations, which have come to support um, education and medicine. And so Pittsburgh claims some of the best life sciences and technologies, universities, universities such as Carnegie Mellon University. And that's where our innovation came from. And so we decided to break new ground and build here in Pittsburgh. Yeah, it's a really great town too. I was really surprised when I got to visit there a few years ago. I have a colleague who works works up there and just the uh, number of really cool bridges and neat architecture. It's, and it's not that big of a town either. Yeah, it's a wonderful place to live and work and great people, really authentic people that hail from blue collar backgrounds. And, and, uh, and so we have just a wonderful, dedicated workforce. And, and, you know, a nice advantage is it's probably a half to two thirds as expensive to do business here, which is always a good thing in, in this market environment. Especially in a biotech, uh, young biotech company. That, that's fantastic. Well, I started talking about this idea of rare diseases. And I know on your website, you mentioned this idea of undruggable, you know, like the things that haven't yet found pharmaceutical cures. And so this approach to bio, rare genetic diseases comes from, at least in your company, at the molecular level. So why is it important to focus on rare diseases? It's such a great question. And as a geneticist by training, every human disease is genetic. And so when I say that, people might be scratching their heads. But, you know, from a genetics point of view, there are really four categories of diseases. The first are the rare single gene, often called Mendelian disorders. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Each of these diseases is caused by a misspelling in one particular gene that causes that disease. And while individually rare, there are between five and 7,000 of these 
rare genetic diseases that affect up to 10% of the global population. Now, at the risk of belaboring the point, these are often deadly. And so children that are diagnosed with a genetic disease at birth often die before their fifth year of age. And broadly written, 95% of these diseases have no effective therapies whatsoever. So we're going to focus on that today. But the second category is cancer. Cancer is a genetic disease, a purely genetic disease of a single cell, which causes that cell to grow uncontrollably. The third category is infectious diseases, something that's gotten a lot of airtime these days. And that's in, uh, a foreign genome getting into your body and replicating itself uncontrollably, purely genetic, albeit a different genome. And finally, the fourth bucket are what are called complex genetic diseases. These are the genetic diseases that are going to touch all of us, Alzheimer's disease, diabetes, heart disease. They're caused by inheriting a set of genetic risk factors, often in multiple genes, that then predispose you to environmental triggers. And so uh, that's the landscape of disease from a geneticist's point of view. Yeah, when you said that all diseases are genetic at their base, you did have me scratching my head on that because we know that there are environmental triggers and different environmental influences, you know, smoking, for instance, which doesn't necessarily uh, have a genetic component unless, you know, you're an affectation for, you know, addiction or whatever. But it's so just to clarify, when you say that all diseases are genetic, you're really saying that there's these underlying predispositions that kind of lay a foundation where a more complicated disorder is more likely to form. Yeah, that's right. I'd say in the first three categories, we talked about single gene diseases, cancer, and infectious diseases. Those are literally caused by genetics. It's, it's causal. In the, case of can, in the case of cancer that you uh, alluded to, you know, the, the, the mutation can come from an environmental insult, in this case, smoking. But the result of that is that you mutate the genome and drive that disease downstream just because of a genetic change. The fourth category, you're exactly right. You can think of it as a genetic predisposition that must be, is, is necessary, and but not sufficient uh, to cause that disease. And so you do have to bump into the environmental insult and those two to get, trigger the disease. But the inverse is also true, where if you don't have the disposition or predisposition and you have the insult, you don't get the disease. So genetics are a key driver in, in common diseases as well. And what are some examples of some relatively rare diseases that, you know, maybe you can give me a good example of something that maybe just a single nucleotide change or very small polymorphism is the basis of that disease? Yeah. So uh, your audience will know that every one of the trillions of cells in the human body has a six billion letter diploid genome. That means you have two copies of each genome, each is 3 billion letters. And sometimes you get a misspelling on one copy or both copies. Some examples of these rare single gene diseases that are often caused by what are called point mutations include diseases like Duchenne muscular dystrophy, where a single change can uh, cause that gene to be misread and truncated. Other diseases, for example, are sickle cell anemia, beta thalassemia, and then there are diseases that are caused perhaps by a couple of uh, misspellings. Uh, the most common is cystic fibrosis, which is a three-letter, the most common mutation there is a three-letter deletion, uh, and that causes that 
very difficult lung disease. And so again, there are between five and 7,000 of these all available in, in a series called the Online Mendelian Inheritance of Man, if folks are interested in going there, OMEM. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. I guess that along that line, how many of these diseases or how many diseases that we have you know, observed over the years are starting to find, are starting to come up with causal genetic associations because of efforts like 23andMe or, you know, maybe just genome sequencing or analysis of genomics. How many of these are really starting to boil down to their causal mutations? Yeah, it's fascinating. And, and it gets into exactly what we're doing here at Newbase. And so we started with with my description of disease as, as, as all being genetic. And we knew that decades ago because of inheritance patterns through families and what's called heritability, where even in these complex genetic diseases, they seem to cluster in families. And so we knew that there was a genetic component to almost every disease. And it took a massive uh, U.S. taxpayer-funded effort called the Human Genome Project in collaboration with the private sector, namely Craig Venter's Solera, to sequence uh, the draft human genome. So we actually had uh, a roadmap and that was published in draft form in the year 2001. And what that allowed us to do was set up genome centers across the world that would take samples from people with a wide variety of diseases and sift through their genetic makeup and compare them to people without those diseases. So very simple comparisons. But that sort of decade plus long distributed academic effort populated what are called variant databases. And so now you can go online and type in, for example, the human mutational database, HGMD, and on your computer, literally look at the world's catalog of mutations in uh, the genome that cause a myriad number of diseases. Now, we didn't stop there as a community. Thereafter, we said, well, gee, what good is it in a database? We need to build the national and global infrastructure to be able to take a sample from a new person out there who's suffering signs and symptoms of a disease and identify which mutation is driving their disease and get that information back to them. And that led to several exciting companies out in the marketplace that can take a cheek swab, uh, test you and send the information back. And, you know, the companies that I think are doing in this in a rigorous way are folks like Invitae and Gardent. The first is for we're called germline diseases. The others are for cancers. So, so that's how we arrived at today. And Nubase is the capstone on that body of work where we now are drugging genes directly in the genome to nip them in the bud before they cause diseases. And this is where I really started to have questions because I looked at the website. I really tried to understand exactly what was going on here. But you're talking about developing drugs that the drug itself is almost a, and, and this is where you'll have to just correct me, appears to be like a nucleic acid analog. It's not necessarily really even a nucleic acid though, but it it's, it binds with affinity to specific DNA bases or RNA in a, in a very uh, specific way. And that's what it appears to be. So if you have a, a disease lesion in a gene because of, and we'll talk about a couple examples in a minute, if you have a, a polymorphism which lends itself to disease, these small drugs kind of silence those mutations, it appears, 
at least from you know what I could what I could glean from this. So why don't you tell me about what the technology is and and how this really can apply to solve a problem such as a small polymorphism? Yeah, Kevin, it's it's such a great question. And to preface my answer, every, so we started by saying every human disease is genetic. Yet almost all drugs that are on the market target downstream proteins. And so you have to scratch your head and say, well, wait, if root causality is at the genome level, because every disease is genetic, why are we drugging proteins, which are the, the final step in the central dogma? And, and, and the reason is because initially because we didn't have the sequence of the genome, so we couldn't develop targeted nucleic acid therapies. And so we just started throwing small molecules at cells from patients and hope that some of them did some beneficial thing. And and didn't kill the cells. And that's literally the drug development strategy, which gave rise to the vast majority of drugs on market today. Now, after we sequenced the genome and published it and developed genetic variant databases, we started being able to develop genetic medicines. Now, almost all of those are focused on drugging RNA, which is the intermediate step, as you know, between DNA and proteins. And so you have to ask yourself again, well, why are they drugging RNA as opposed to the genome? And the answer there is because the genome has evolved in a double helical structure that we're all familiar with from high school biology to protect itself. This is existential information. It's, it's the blueprint of life. And it's, it's almost like it's a snail with a shell. Drugs have difficulty getting in there and engaging with a mutant gene. And so that's the technology, that's the problem that we decided to, to solve. Open up the genome, query it with a synthetic oligonucleotide technology, which I want to describe to you, but maintain exquisite precision of target engagement such that we're only interacting with the mutated gene that gives rise to the disease and don't have any off-target engagement elsewhere in the 6 billion letter duplex genome. And then there were other technical challenges that we had to solve. So for example, how do you get the drug to the tissue at the site of pathology? Most genetic medicines just go to the liver. How do we ensure that these are well-tolerated and non-immunogenic? How can we manufacture them at scale, uh, You know, given the breadth of impact we hope to achieve? Uh, and then how can we really have a, an output that increases logarithmically so that we can keep up with the unmet needs? So that's the context. And I, th I thought it was important to, to give you that. So what is the medicine? It looks very similar to a short single strand of DNA. So you have a backbone and you have nucleobases. And the nucleobases are arranged in a sequence that's complementary to the mutant gene of interest. The third piece is a delivery shuttle that we tack on the end of it that allows subcutaneous or intravenous administration. Now it's the backbone that's the secret sauce. And this is a synthetic, it's called a polyamide scaffold, and it confers an extremely high binding affinity to this medicine, so much so that it can quote unquote invade the genome. But because it's also semi-rigid, it does not tolerate mismatches like other genetic medicines do. And that's where this exquisite precision of target engagement comes from. Yeah. So let me really think about this. So when we talk about target engagement, you're talking about this, this oligonucleotide. Well, it seems like an oligonucleotide, but it doesn't have a traditional 
phosphodiester backbone, right? That you would find on a normal oligonucleotide, right? Correct. All right. So it's this amide backbone that's neutrally charged that this thing for some reason can go into the genome and displace the nascent strand from a target sequence and bind that target sequence in and bind it with a very high affinity. So it essentially goes into the genome and grabs onto that uh, sequence and, and locks in there. That's right. Exactly. And it's the neutral charge that um, allows it to approach the genome, which, as you know, has two negatively charged backbones twisted into the double helix. And so the neutrality of the drug allows it to get close without being repulsed. And that confers high binding affinity. But it's also helical. And so we induce this helical structure that precisely matches the helicity of the genome, which means the drug and the target don't have to contort themselves to engage, which further increases the binding affinity. Yeah, it just seems to me that, you know, as a guy who teaches molecular biology, that genomes are very good at surveillance and that when they detect anything wrong, like a single base pair mismatch, there are mechanisms that come in to correct it or to, you know, do something to, you know, to address it. It would seem like this invading piece of synthetic polymer would be a red flag to the genome and and it would immediately excise it and get rid of it. (laughs) It's such a brilliant question. There are two, there are two modes that these compounds work in. One is temporarily engaging a gene to modulate machinery that runs on the rails of that gene. And the most obvious machine that runs on the rails of the genome is called RNA polymerase. Uh, That's what transcribes a gene into an mRNA. And by temporarily engaging that mutant gene with our drug, we block RNA polymerase, eliminate the mutant downstream protein. So it's just not made. Now, that drug does come off over time. There's an off rate uh, in that binding mode. And so that is not a beacon for uh, cellular uh, repair machinery. But if we really clamp that drug down onto the genome, onto a strand of the genome, and it just doesn't come off because it's either so long or we create a structure called a tail clamp, which we can go into, it suddenly acts as a beacon for nucleotide excision repair machinery that descend upon the genome. And if we can currently provide a DNA donor strand along with our PNA compound, we can actually do ultra high fidelity in vivo genome editing by leveraging the cell's own machinery, as opposed to using bacterially derived base editors that are predicated on CRISPR-Cas9, which by definition haven't gone through the millennia of evolution that the human machinery has and are not as compatible with the genome as our own cellular repair machinery. So two ways of, of, uh, of uh, modulating output, one temporary and one permanent. Okay, you just gave me goosebumps. <laughs> it sounds so. I know, like you know, to, to to someone who isn't in the molecular biology, who's listening to us have this conversation, they probably think I'm nuts. I, I totally get it because that was really my next question: is why not just use these bacterial gene editors? I mean, you know, they're starting to be able to try to think about that in some specific somatic tissues where you have access to the tissue, like you know, cystic fibrosis or something like that. 
but but this is the real magic to this having a precise system that goes in and delivers this but then at the same time but it also can be targeted or does it just kind of go everywhere very efficiently and then find its it's that i guess that's the other big question does it is it specifically targetable to something say in the brain or something in you know the muscle or whatever yeah, definitely. So, you know, I, I think I missed a key concept that I'd like to just touch on very quickly and then we can move to delivery. So every disease is genetic and the genetic changes in a gene cause the disease by only three mechanisms. One is by pumping out too much of a good thing. That's called a gain of function mutation. The other is by reducing the amount of the resultant protein, and that's called a loss of function mutation. So not enough of a good thing. And the third is a change of function where the mutation actually confers a new activity on the resultant protein. Our single technology can modulate all three of those different mechanisms. And so not only can we potentially address every disease, because every disease is genetic, but we can also increase, decrease, or change gene output. Increase and decrease through temporary engagement with a gene to do jujitsu moves on the machinery that control gene out. And the third by gene editing, as we just talked about. Now, how do we get it to where it needs to act? This is a central challenge in genetic medicines broadly read. And the vast majority of genetic medicines are heavily negatively charged. They're high molecular weight. And when you administer them systemically, they generally go to the liver. And that's because the liver is one of the first organs that the blood sees, but also there are these what are called scavenger receptors in the liver that are geared to clearing out negatively charged nucleic acids. That's a form of protection from infectious disease. And so our medicine is uh, neutral in charge, low molecular weight, so they can slip past the scavenger receptors. And then we tack on a technology that allows them to interact with the cell membranes of any cell type in the human body and form an emulsion that's directly translocated into the cytoplasm and then diffuses into the nucleus. So generally speaking, our delivery technology allows the drug to get into every tissue. Now, it's only the tissues where the mutant gene is activated that the drug will work. It simply bounces off the genome if the gene isn't turned on in those other tissues. Okay, so it has something to do with a gene being active. So is it something to do with like chromatin organization of the gene, or is it something to do with it being actively transcribed? Yeah, so actively transcribed loci are actually breathing, and they, meaning the duplex is opening and closing as the transcriptional machinery is acting, and it makes them more accessible to the drug slipping in and querying for sequence complementarity. And then when the genome tries to close back on itself, it can't because of the high binding affinity. And so that's the, the detailed mechanics behind what we call invasion. And, and so, yeah, actively transcribed loci are different uh, across different cells and tissue in the body. But in general, if there's a disease that's manifesting in a certain cell type, it's in a gene that's actively transcribed. And that provides a layer of selectivity for, for the compounds. Maybe another technical question here, and I hope I'm not getting too much in the weeds. But when we talk about specificity of binding, this seems to be so important, especially because we're talking about diseases that may be based on a nucleotide or two difference. And specificity in base pair pairing is dictated by issues like physiological pH and salt concentration and, you know, the hydrogen bonding that happens between those bases. 
so what is different about the drug that makes it have more affinity, but not too much? Because, you know, if you obviously, if you have maybe a, a bit of a mismatch, you can sometimes make it stick if the conditions are amenable. So how do you have a drug that is super sticky to find the right target, yet not so sticky that it goes to indiscriminate sites? Yeah. And this is, this is a unique feature of these backbones that in lay parlance, they're semi-rigid, meaning they really cannot bend around a mismatch between itself and the, and the nucleic acid target. It would, it would rather pop off and continue its search for a perfect match elsewhere in the genome. And you know, the closest thing I can think of as sort of visual reference is, is nylon. Nylon is actually very similar chemically to our backbone. And you get a sense for, you know, how it's a, a little rigid. And, and, and that feels very different than a traditional sugar phosphate uh, backbone, which is floppy and, and loosey-goosey. And, and for those of you that, you know, used to do molecular biology in the old days, you know, you could you could get an oligo to stick to a mismatched sequence just by you know, reducing the temperature of hybridization and so forth. And so that, that doesn't happen with these by nature of this semi-rigid backbone. Okay. That, that helps a lot. So we're speaking with Dietrich Stefan. He's the CEO and founder of New Base Therapeutics. We're talking about drugs that can change the genome and allow different therapies to potentially be delivered to solve rare or pretty much any early gen or any genetic disease. So pretty exciting stuff. This is Calabra's Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll be back in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Calabra, the data monitoring platform designed to reveal research insights and streamline reporting across your organization. With Calabra, you'll gain a comprehensive view of your research workflows, simplifying scientific IP governance, compliance, and analysis. Visit Collabra.app to learn how you can transform your research process today. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P. -P. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast by Collabra. And if you haven't tried their free trial of their software, go ahead and give it a shot. It really does help your laboratory efficiency. So we're speaking with Dietrich Stefani. He's the CEO and founder of New Base Therapeutics in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And we're talking about the drugs, which are nucleotide-like <laughs> analogs, which have the ability to bind and essentially derail polymerases or change the way in which genes are expressed, uh, it, which means you can pretty much affect so many different diseases at the source. And in the second half of the podcast today, I wanted to touch on a couple of the examples that you're currently working on in the pipeline. And the first one really is this idea of monotonic dystrophy type 1. What is that disease and what are some of the symptoms? Yeah, so myotonic dystrophy type 1 or DM1 is a uh, Mendelian disease. It's dominantly inherited and it has a mutation on one copy uh, of the two copies of a gene called DMPK, myotonic dystroph dystrophy kinase protein. And that, that mutation, that allele, when it's... Um, copied into an mRNA, forms an aberrant RNA structure. It's called a hairpin because it looks like a bobby pin. And that acts as a sink or a magnet for a whole bunch of really important proteins in the nucleus. They get sucked onto that hairpin 
And because they're stuck on the hairpin, they can't do what they're supposed to do, which is regulate normal cellular processing of a whole bunch of pre-mRNAs. And so you get what's called a spliceopathy. I know that's, that's kind of in the weeds, but what happens in these patients is that essentially their splicing patterns revert back to an embryonic form of uh, splicing across thousands of different transcripts. And so now their resultant proteins, again, thousands of these proteins are all slightly dis disfigured, so still compatible with life, but they cause muscle weakness and wasting and inability to relax muscle, often fatal cardiac conduction defects, cognitive deficits. Kids are often on respirators. And so it is a devastating disease and patients succumb in midlife as a result of this you know, subtle genetic change on one copy of the DMPK gene. Yeah. And just for the listener, this is in a three prime UTR. So in a three prime untranslated region, which for those of you who aren't in the deep molecular biology, this is not the protein coding part of the gene. This is not the part that has the information that's translated into the final protein. This is a, essentially if it was, if, if it was a dog, it would have a funny tail. And it's that little bit of misinformation in the, in the tail, which causes this aberrant sequestration of these splicing factors and causes is, is the root cause of this disease, which is really interesting because it just goes to show how these, how something so subtle could be so devastating. And, and that really is a, it really is interesting. How, how is that currently treated? Well, it's not. It, there are no effective therapies for myotonic dystrophy at all, period. And so patients suffer with no hope currently. Devastating. Is it real common? Well, it isn't real common. In terms of being a rare disease, how rare is it? It's actually the most common neuromuscular um, disease. Uh, it affects uh, one in 8,000 individuals globally, which means that there are tens of thousands of people in the U.S. alone that suffer from, and again, most succumb to the disease in midlife. And what's the new base approach then? So you're, I'm guess, targeting this three prime UTR region? Yeah, we are. This is a little bit of a divergence from our core uh, focus of drugging the double-stranded genome itself. In this case, we're drugging the double-stranded RNA that's toxic. So it's still a double-stranded structure. Uh, it's still refractory to drugging using other genetic medicines. And our, our drug simply slips in, invades that hairpin, relinearizes it, and sterically displaces all of those inappropriately sequestered splicing proteins. Uh, so they can now go do what they're supposed to do in the nucleus. And we've shown that a single dose IV completely rescues normal splicing, rescues the ability of transgenic animals to normally relax their muscles, and will be entering the clinic early next year in, in patients. So does it restore the normal function of the mutant gene itself? Or is it that that one's just eliminated then and you're basically have another copy from the other, you know, the other genome that allows this to f function normally? Yeah. So really great question. So that mutant transcript gets stuck in the nucleus because of that hairpin and that aggregate. And you can actually see these aggregates under the microscope using a technology called fluorescence in situ hybridization. They look like little speckles in the nucleus of patient cells. The other is transcribed and exported into the nucleus and forms a healthy protein, but there's not enough of it. There's only 50% of that resultant protein product. And 
we believe that also contributes to the disease. So not only do you have a spliceopathy, but we you have what's called a haploinsufficiency, half is not enough of the DMPK protein itself. So when we engage that target that's stuck in the nucleus, that mRNA, that, that hairpin, it linearizes it. And we believe uh, that that then allows the transcript to escape into the cytoplasm and be translated. And to your earlier point, the protein coding region is not affected by the mutation and it's not engaged by the drug. And so that translational machinery can restore the haploinsufficiency. And we've uh, seen evidence of that in our preclinical work. So why isn't this therapeutic molecule immunogenic? Yeah, it's a great question. This class of compound has been reported in the academic literature to be quote unquote immunologically inert. And generally it's because it's a synthetic polymer. And again, I'll reference the nylon example. I think it's a, just a good sort of intuitive example of how nylon is uh, used to close wounds and is non-immunogenic by nature of its chemistry. And and so maybe to go down at the next level, you know, the primary innate immune mechanism recognizes invading foreign DNA and mounts an immune reaction against it are intracellular toll-like receptors, specifically TLR9. And those are present in, in endosomes, in cells. And when they see nucleic acids being taken up into these endosomes, they recognize them by their negatively charged sugar phosphate backbones. And as soon as that TLR9 recognizes it, it mounts a, it mounts a Th1 innate response that's you know triggered by the cell seeing DNA floating around when it shouldn't be and, and as a signal of a foreign invasion. And so in this case, our molecules don't have a, a negatively charged sugar phosphate backbone. And so in that specific instance, we don't see an innate response that's triggered by TLR9. We don't see complement activation. And even an acquired B or T cell response has never been seen before after repeat chronic dosing. And it's a little less clear as to why antibodies can't recognize these compounds, but we've never seen an acquired response either. Now, very good. Because it, it seems like, like the big question, but that, that's great that it evades this. So according to your website, the other disease, which is currently focused of the company is Huntington's disease. And so Huntington's disease is also pretty interesting in terms of its molecular basis. Can you touch on that and maybe a little bit about the disease symptoms? Yeah, Huntington's disease is among uh, the most horrific diseases that any of us will hopefully never encounter. But it's also a dominant genetic disease where one copy of a gene called Huntington has a trinucleotide repeat expansion in exon one. And all of us have a short repeat set of repeat units in exon one of the HTT gene. But in some patients uh, or in some individuals, the repeat becomes unstable and expands excessively. And when that happens, the resultant protein has what polyglutamine run in it. So there are more of these glutamine molecules that cause the protein to become very sticky and aggregate within neurons. We believe that's the dominant mechanism behind the disease. And those intraneuronal aggregates actually kill the neurons. And so what happens is neurons start dying and patients stop losing the ability to walk and talk and think. And eventually the patient dies because their brain dies. And their children, 50% of them will carry the mutant gene and agonize over whether to get tested in the absence of any therapy whatsoever. 
Yeah, that, it is a devastating one. I had a student who went to study this in Cambridge for a while and just a devastating disease. So what is the approach from, from your company in terms of a therapeutic? So our compounds are targeted against that expanded CAG repeat unit in the exon one of the gene itself at the DNA level. And so this is sort of in our core sweet spot as a company drugging the double-stranded genome. And what we have shown is that subcutaneous injections into multiple transgenic animal models, so an injection just under the skin with the delivery shuttle on the compound enables the drug to get across the blood-brain barrier which is one of the grand challenges of delivering macromolecules broadly writ. And we like that because we're coming up through the cerebral vasculature and getting even exposures throughout the brain because every neuron is proximal to a vessel. And then the compound enters the neuron body, uh, gets into the nucleus, invades the gene in exon one and selectively shuts down transcription of the mutant. And we've seen uh, statistically significant decreases in mutant Huntington protein in the brains of those multiple transgenic animal models. And we're extremely excited about this because we want to preserve normal, healthy Huntington protein, which is essential for uh, life. So we think we've got a winning solution here. The other nuance is that there are other tissues in Huntington's patients that are affected. And, you know, other folks are simply trying to squirt their genetic medicines into the brain compartment itself. And or ignoring those other tissues that have pathologies in them. And so a systemic route allows us to address the disease as a whole body solution. It really is pretty amazing. So the, so the drug that your company has designed identifies the codons that encode this polynucleotide repeat and are able to shut down transcription from those aberrant genes. That's right. Okay. So that, yeah, I just want to make sure I had that right. So is this something that if you were to be tested and you know, you have the mutant allele that you would maybe take this drug as almost a prophylactic against further expansion of the nucleotide repeats to, that would lead to the aberrant protein? Absolutely. That's our bullseye. That's our, that's our, that's our target on the horizon. And, you know, given an individual is born with the mutation, but doesn't develop symptoms until midlife, it's a, it's a relatively slow progressing disease in the context of a lifespan. And so if we can get an affected off an individual from an affected patient tested early in life because their family history and get in a decade before first symptom onset, we, we firmly believe we can push out the onset of the disease significantly by decades or even balance it with a healthy lifespan and eliminate the disease. Now, the clinical development strategy around getting there is, is a little complicated and nuanced, but that's where we're driving as a company. Yeah, but right now you're you're strictly working in animal models that express perhaps the human protein in its mutant form and can show that it can be suppressed. That's right. Yeah, so that that's pretty good stuff. So what else is happening in the pipeline right now in terms of other diseases that you're targeting? Yeah, so we decided we also wanted to take a run at the two most prevalent cancer-causing mutations on the planet. These two-point mutations account for and cause 15% of all cancers across the globe, and there are no therapeutic solutions to address this activated oncogene. The oncogene is called KRAS, K-R-A-S, uh, and the two most prevalent mutations in KRAS are called G12D, 
and G12V as in Victor. And they cause a myriad of different tumor types, pancreatic, lung, colon, and the list goes on. And they're among the most deadly because no one has developed any drugs that target these activated oncogenes or their resultant proteins. And so it plays to the sweet spot of our technology. So we can put a lock right on top of the mutation, on top of the point mutation, and inhibit RNA polymerase from forming uh, a mutant mRNA or a cancer-driving protein. And we've shown that we can do this in, in cells from people with cancer, selectively shut down the KRAS oncogene inhibit the downstream signaling that drive cells uncontrollably to divide. And we've also moved those into what are called xenograft animal models, where we've taken human tumors and implanted them into mice, and we can slow or stop the growth of those tumors with these compounds. And so we're quite excited about these. And behind that, you know, the opportunities are limit, limitless. And this is actually the, the big challenge that we have as an organization is how can we possibly develop against all of the impact opportunities? And that's where partnerships come in. Well, this is all really exciting stuff because it just seems to me that so many different diseases we don't look at hard enough or have evaded other types of therapies because either something doesn't work or can't be delivered, right? So so this seems to satisfy many of those checkboxes. So if people want to learn more about what's happening with the company, where can they look online? Yeah, please visit us uh, at our website, Newbase Therapeutics, N-E-U, NewBaseTherapeutics.com. We're also on LinkedIn and Twitter if you simply search for NewBase. And uh, please feel free to reach out if you have any questions. Yeah, and NewBase is N-E-U-B-A-S-E. Correct. Yeah, don't don't look at N-U-Base or N-E-W-Base. <laughs> Who knows what you'll get? Um, but N-E-U-B-A-S-E Therapeutics. Well, Dietrich, thank you very much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. And do me a favor. And as breakthroughs happen, I would love to have you back and talk about more of this because it's an intriguing technology that apparently has the potential to do a lot of good things. Well, I, I salute you for what you're doing to uh, educate the world as to all of these exciting new breakthroughs in healthcare. And it would be a, a real pleasure to, to join you again. And as always, thank you very much for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Your reviews, your sharing, the information about the podcast really does work. Bigger followings every year as we're entering into year eight of the podcast. And it's all because we have excellent listeners that share this podcast. Thank you very much for listening. And we'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.